So I actually went to the gliding club when I was 14 for an initial test, like a little flight with another pilot who showed me in my first flight, we did three loopings and we did some really awesome uh, spins and stuff. So it was really cool and I was immediately hooked. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck and I am your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 70. Thank you for joining us. We will be joining our guest pilot in a few minutes. But first, I'd like to thank our Patreon pilot of the week. Joe Capra, the gliding goat on Instagram. Joe is our biggest contributor since the last episode. We greatly appreciate your support, and thank you to all of our other Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast and make it possible for us to keep bringing you great soaring content. If you'd like to be our next Patreon pilot, just go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky or click the link in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Rosita joins us today, a 22-year-old adventurer pilot currently working as a skydive pilot in both Europe and the Caribbean, building hours towards her dream, working as a humanitarian air service pilot in Central Africa. Her passion for aviation started early. At the age of 15, she first soloed in the DG-1000, and throughout her teen years, she would spend every weekend at the Soaring Club, and every summer, her and some friends would set up their tents at the airport for a three-week flying camp. She now organizes these camps for young aspiring pilots and finds so much joy in carrying on this tradition for the new generation of aviation lovers. She loves sharing her aviation adventures on YouTube as Pilot Bambi. Also on this podcast today, Andrew White from Lake Keep It Australia will join us for our safety soaring segment. Then later, David Hart talks to us on our tips and techniques segment, focusing on motor gliders. All of this and more now on Soaring the Sky. Rosita, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you. Of course, you're also known as Pilot Bambi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Love to have you. So where are you flying out of? Um, I'm currently based in Hilversum, Echo Hotel, Hotel Victor in the Netherlands. It's a really, really nice little airport with a super uh, dynamic and, and fun little club. Uh, it's actually right to, uh, it's around Amsterdam area. So we do have a few issues with uh, controlled airspace. We can't fly that high out here, but it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of young, young student gliders. So um, yeah, I'm happy here. How's the terrain there? Is it flat? The terrain? Yes. Yeah, the terrain is really flat. I mean, we're uh, our air- airport's at uh, zero meters altitude. Um, it's all flat. We don't have any mountainous areas, so um, yeah, it's it's very flat. We we I mean, the whole of the Netherlands is completely flat. It, to the east, to the uh, to German areas, there can be some more terrain, but uh, yeah, I'm, we don't have any mountains or anything. <laughs> so you're relying strictly on thermals. Yeah, hundred percent. Yes. So how did all this begin? 
Uh, well, it was actually really funny because I grew up in Tanzania in East Africa. And from a really young age, I knew that I wanted to be a, a commercial pilot. I wanted to work for a humanitarian organization. And um, when we, my family moved to the Netherlands in 2010, uh, so I was 12 then, uh, my dad my dad flies as well. He's a private pilot. And he told me about this glider club that you could become a member of at uh, the age of 14. And I had no idea how that worked. I was like, oh, gliders, no motor. How does that work? Uh, so I actually went to the gliding club when I was 14 for an initial test, like a little flight with another pilot who showed me in my first flight, we did three loopings and we did some really awesome uh, spins and stuff. So it was really cool. And I was immediately hooked. So I started flying gliders uh, since my 15th birthday and been a member ever since. And that's kind of how my aviation story began. What were you flying when you first got into gliders? What were you training in? Uh, we have three. We At that time, we had three DG-1000s. Um, so that was a fantastic aircraft to learn to fly in. We still had an, uh, an ASK 13 for a while. Uh, I only did two or three flights in the 13 because it was, yeah, a lot of instructors wanted us to immediately start on the newer aircraft at the time. The DG thousand was very new. Um, and then I went solo on the DG thousand, then started flying the junior and uh, I made a few flights on the K-8. I love flying on wooden aircraft. It's just such a such a different experience than all the newer, more modern planes. And uh, yeah, so mainly on the DG-1000. That's what the most of my uh, flights were on. What are you flying now? I have to say that I am more focused on motorized flying now since uh, that's my work. And I do a lot of ferry flights and and uh, drop skydivers. So when I have the time, I actually, I, w I was a passive member at my flying club last year. So this year I'm finally a member again and I've done most of my flights on the DG-1000, a few uh, solo flights just on the junior and I love the LS4 as well. Um, and actually I did my first flight on the uh, Duo Discus with a friend of mine. And I think that's a fantastic plane. <laughs> uh, you tell me about the Duo Discus. What do you like about it? I think the Geodiscus is very spacious. Um, if you compare it to the DG-1000, it's just, it's it's such an ergonomically well-produced plane, I find. It's, uh, I had to get, we didn't use the, um, the, the sustainer engine. We tested it out, of course, before our cross-country. Um, but I find it so ergonomically satisfying that you have a lot of lightweight, the, the, the stick, your controls are very easy and you really feel that, the plane is moving the way you want it. Um, very different to what I experienced from the older wooden aircraft. Um, I think the, the element of safety of having a sustainer engine is quite cool. We didn't actually use it, but yeah, I, I love it. And the long wings and it just, it flies very comfortably. Yeah, always nice to have that extra insurance, right? Exactly. Do you fly with a sustainer engine aircraft as well? I have not yet experienced that. So that is something that I'm looking forward to. Okay, cool. Have you ever flown with a, a glider plane with a with an engine on it, or is that have is that would that be your first time? That would be my first time. Yeah, not yet. Okay, yeah. I mean, some people you can you can debate whether that's the real glider or not, but it's a, it's a cool new experience. It makes a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice to have both, you know. Exactly. Have you ever had to land out? I have never had to land out before. Uh, our club is very good at explaining the whole, like uh, how you make the best outlanding, and we train for it a lot. Um, but 
I think it's because I didn't, I haven't had that many cross country flights before with gliders. So it's never come to the point where I had to make an out landing. But if I would have that situation that it would, would occur, I think I've had so many friends and uh, co pilots actually that have had experiences with outlandings that it feels quite. I wouldn't be very afraid to do it, I think. Also, because the Netherlands is so flat, there's so many outlanding spots. It's good to share those stories with each other. You know, we can learn from it. Yeah, and exactly. It definitely helps. And kind of get away from that stigma that it is something that's really, really scary or really dangerous. I mean, if you keep your head head focused on what you're doing, then I think it uh, it's kind of just a normal part of the gliding experience. Absolutely. So out of the flights you've had in the glider, can you tell me about one that maybe stands out? The one that stands out most, I think one of the ones that stands out most is the aerobatic flights that I did with my parents. Um, I've always been a really, really big fan of glider aerobatics. I think it's so beautiful and more controlled than with motorized aircraft. Um, so I was doing <laughs> loopings in the junior when I was, I think, 15. And now when I got my... GPL, so my glider pilot license here in the Netherlands, when I was eight and 19, I think. I was flying solo for quite some time. And then the first time that I was allowed to do uh, aerobatics with passengers was with my mom. And it was the funniest thing ever. It was her, I I put a little GoPro on her, facing her in the back, and we had such a laugh. But just purely the flights that I share with family and friends, those are my most cherished memories. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So can you tell me about a scary toe or winch launch you may have had? I think the scary, I actually really remember the first scary winch launch that I had was um, with a K8. It's super light. And this was back when I was, I think, 16. So I was quite small and uh, not so heavy. And it was, uh, we organized summer camps at our gliding club every year. We have three weeks of summer camp of five intense full days of flying. The weekends are off. And then that's, three weeks in a row. So it's amazing for your growth as a glider pilot. But I did realize that um, after a few days of intense flying, long days from sunrise to sunset, you can get quite exhausted, especially when you're younger and you have all this (laughs) intense energy. Sometimes that gets depleted. And uh, one of the days in the last week, I had been flying a lot. It was a really warm summer day. And I think I, I was just quite exhausted. And they said, yeah, who wants to go up with the K8? And I said, yeah, me, me. So um, I, uh, I stepped in the K8 and I think I wasn't as focused as I should have been. So uh, we, I got uh, launched up and the launch speed was so fast that I pulled this, the, the control to me too far. And I was just too vertical. My speed was was slipping away from me and later on an instructor had a whole debriefing with me that it looked very scary and they were afraid that I was gonna stall this aircraft and I especially at such a young age I didn't realize what the intense consequences of that were uh, of of that was and it was quite a scary experience I was too slow Um, luckily I made the right movements I pushed the stick forward I got some speed back and it was a safe uh, winch launch in the end but it was quite a quite a memorable in quite a negative way moment but I learned a lot from it and what about you do you have any memories like that or have two two slow winch launches Uh, no I've I've just done aerotoe um the scariest flight I had was probably when I was in the pattern coming into land and there was a couple aircraft on the runway Mm -hmm. I'd radioed a couple times I wasn't getting any response I'm not sure 
what happened there, but they did actually end up taking off and getting out of my way. But in a glider, you, you shouldn't hesitate. And I did. I hesitated and I was just kind of hanging out in the pattern. And by the time I came in, I, I cleared the trees by like 30 feet, but there's a tree line there in front of uh, runway, runway 29. Oh, wow. I had the GoPro running. So I did get it all on video, so I have that to remind me not to uh, wait around. I could have landed in the grass, but I was new at flying gliders, and it's just one of those mistakes you make. And thankfully, I made it in, and I think when I came across the runway there, I was just so low. <laughs> but, yeah, I learned from it, so that's the important thing, to as long as you get through it and you learn from it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can walk away from it and you're safe and, and you didn't injure anyone or hurt anybody. And you really learn from that. And like we said earlier, also sharing your stories without maybe having that feeling of embarrassment that you made a mistake, because that's what we learn from. And we should have this open conversation with everybody about what you, what you should learn from each other and how you can improve for your next flights and always be very vigilant. That's what I, I really support as well. Absolutely. You know, we've talked about that a few times on the podcast is don't be embarrassed because if it saves somebody's life. So what's maybe the coolest or strangest thing you've seen from the cockpit? Um, let me think. Oh, I think one of the coolest things I saw from the cockpit was a hot air balloon. We had some on a really, really quiet day at sunset, almost at sunset. There were, I think there were 10 or 15 hot air balloons in the sky and one of them got really close to our airfield. And we actually had some radio contact with the uh, hot air balloon pilot. Uh, so we got really close and we uh, we actually circled around the hot air balloon. And that was magnificent. I think that was so spectacular. So I've, like, I've actually never flown with birds and thermals. I have flown with a lot of other planes and thermals. But the most spectacular memory was, uh, was with that hot air balloon. Oh, that's pretty cool. And what about you? <laughs> I... I flew close to a blimp at uh, one point, one of my flights. That was kind of strange. I was, I'd been up in the air for probably 15, 20 minutes, and I looked to the southeast, and I was like, is that a blimp? <laughs> and then the closer it got, it, yeah, it was. But it just kind of passed through, and I stayed away from it. But it, it was it was wild. It's not something you expect to see <laughs> when you're flying. But No, exactly. <laughs> Wow, that's so cool. So what weather products do you use before you go soaring? Yes, uh, before I go flying, uh, I <laughs> there are very mixed uh, feelings about windy. I really love windy. I think it's very, it, it has all the information in one picture. I don't know if you know windy.com. I haven't checked that one out, no. Windy.com is really cool. It has a, uh, a map that you can uh, zoom in and zoom out. You have all the the, the different weather information on there, cloud base, uh, wind direction, speed uh, at different altitudes. I think it's just very user-friendly. Um, and I mean, f mainly for my motorized flying, I have different uh, websites that I use. I love just, um, I think that what we have in the Netherlands is we have all these different airports that have very uh, useful and very accurate um, weather data. So the TAF and METAR, I really keep a close eye on. Um, I must say that for for cross country flights and stuff, I, I haven't had many of those. A lot of my friends that do long on very thermal days, they go on long cross countries. They uh, meet up beforehand or the day before and discuss it with instructors. So uh, we really have that community of of working together on those kind of days. So I actually have a really funny story. A little side note: 
at our flying club, like I said, we have a lot of really young student pilots from 14 onwards. And here in the Netherlands, I don't know how it is in the US, you can start, you can get your glider pilot license at the age of 16. So I have two friends and they're, I think they're both 17, uh, Jesper and Jop. And I think they are so cool. At the age of 17, they are, uh, they go on cross-country uh, flights together in two different LS4s and they, they they find thermals together and fly all the way to the border of the Netherlands, go into Germany. And I just think that's such a cool thing at that age to already do such cool flights. Absolutely. Wow. Because how is that in the US? Is is it also at the age of 16 that you can start, that you can get your yes, license? Yes, correct. Yeah. And are there a lot of uh, young glider pilots in your area? There's a few in my area. Um, I would I would like to see more. I, I know, and like especially where you are, I believe uh, soaring and gliding is so much more popular in the United States. It depends on the area, but it's not as popular as it is there. So I would like to see some more involvement with the young people when we're trying. You know, part of the reason I started this podcast was to get people aware of soaring and to discover it and get into it. But that kind of brings me to a question you had briefly touched on it earlier, but. So what is your local club doing to promote soaring? Um, we have, uh, a couple of years ago, we made a promotional video that uh, was really cool. I got to star in and do some flying for. I think what we do is we really promote our uh, summer camps. We have, well, actually, it's not only summer camps, but our gliding camps. The, they occur three times a year. So we have a, uh, a spring camp of a week, a summer camp, and a fall camp, uh, which is also a week that is really, really focused on uh, beginning gliders, uh, glider pilots and getting them uh, towards their first solo. And because we organize these specific days in the holiday time for, uh, yeah, well, it's not only young, the young pilots, also the beginning older pilots, everyone who's just starting is, is more than welcome to join. And we have uh, a really big number of instructors that come for the whole week. So, it's it's focused on a quick kind of growth in your in your in your skill, and and because it's in the holiday times, a lot of young pilots are able to uh, to join in on these camps, um, and we promote that quite well. I don't think on social media uh, they haven't done too much. Um, it's kind of in the word of mouth, and the Hilfsum Airport is really central in in Holland. There's actually quite a few gliding clubs, but the one that I am a member of is quite central. Uh, a lot of people uh, bike to the to the parking area and then there's all these little benches there. So we have a lot of kind of spectators on our flying days. And often people that come to watch are like, oh, wow, can I, what age can you start? And how accessible is it? So that's how we promote our, our, our hobby, actually. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great idea. I'd like to see more yeah. clubs doing that. I'm here in the Mid-Atlantic, so yeah, I'm trying sure. to get uh, my club to get into some of that stuff. And I flew out in California uh, recently, and they're part of the STEM program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but basically bringing young people no. in from the schools. It's science, technology. Uh, they bring bring students in from the local schools, and they give them like a first flight and introduce them into soaring, but also you know teach house has to do with science and engineering and it's really awesome so i got to experience that seeing a lot of the young people have okay. their first flights and it's some ex exciting stuff so there's some things going on here but yeah we need to expand that and have some other clubs do that as well because 
it's important to get the young people involved in it. You know, a lot of the soaring clubs here, I don't know about there, you know, they get older and the group gets older, the pilots get older, and then you find that they just dissolve because there's no young people to, to keep the club going. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I agree with you on that, that if you don't join, if you don't welcome the younger generation into it, you really kind of lose this beautiful sport. I What I really like about our gliding club is that we have a really, really big range, like age range. And you see that, I don't know if this comes across strange, but you see that the younger generation learns a lot from the older gen- generation, gets a lot of response. Because, I mean, soaring is a very... Uh, you you get so many responsibilities, especially if you fly solo at such a young age and you learn all these life lessons actually from these more experienced pilots. And the young generation also keeps the older generation young and excited about the flying. And I I really love that kind of environment that's created at a gliding club that has such a different age range, actually. They do, you know, they kind of feed off each other. I've talked to some older pilots and they said they love taking some of the young people with them and just seeing the excitement. Now, at some point, you also realize that that the things you do become normal. The longer cross country flights, or just flying in your in your local area, and all I, I know a lot of my instructors who have flown all over the world and uh, glide and uh, soar in Australia or in South Africa. Um, so, hearing their stories is also really inspiring for my own future goals, and and that's important to have that combination of of experience and not experience you learn from each other have you ever had any near misses um no i've actually never had a, a near miss um so far my flying has been knock on wood very very safe um we do have uh, on one side of our airfield we have some higher uh high level trees they're they're sticking out a little bit higher on our final approach but i think starting so young i got a really good feel for um spotting other aircrafts and i don't know how it is in the u.s i've never actually flown there Uh, i've never soared there but we're in a very very congested airspace we have motorized traffic at the same airfield that are are flying uh parallel circuits with us on the other side of the field so on final you always see them coming at you actually so we've always really been able to keep our distance flying in thermals with other aircrafts has from in my experience always gone really well so no no near misses i think a few hard landings especially when uh going over to a new aircraft but you learn from those that's all a part of it i think yeah i think we've all had a couple of those (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so do you use flarm in your glider Yes, we have Flarm. We, uh, which is helpful. Um, sometimes you hear it all go off in the in the in the glider while you're being towed, and especially if you're stuck in a thermal and you're so focused, and someone else joins in, it's it's nice to to have that little uh, alarm going off. Yeah, that extra safety. Yeah, but I must say, like, I love all the new instruments and and additional uh, gadgets that help you fly safer. But I also really enjoyed flying the K8 that literally only had a altimeter and a airspeed indicator <laughs> and a few right. more things but that's also a lot of fun i think old school flying for me is uh is a lot of uh is, is kind of a challenge too and what's the oldest plane that you've ever flown in oh that's probably the the uh, 233 it's like a 1967 i believe oh cool awesome and then, uh, schweitzer <laughs> manufactured in new york yeah Oh, I've I've never flown one. Of- yeah, there are uh, there. Some people say they're like a, a tank, but 
in the air, but, <laughs> but the, it's a great trainer, you know, so it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And it sure. is, it is the old school stick and rudder, you know, flying and. Yeah, for sure. What's the longest uh, flight that you've actually ever done in a glider? Uh, I think an hour and 10 minutes. I'm, I'm not, I don't have any super long flights right now. Okay. Yeah, after a while, it's also your feet get cold and you have to use the toilet. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. my experience. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I hear stories of my, my friends that go on for flights of 10 hours and I think, wow, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, just keep going? Aren't you exhausted at some point or get itchy legs? That's that's how I would feel after a while. So my longest one was uh, four hours. My longest solo was uh, three and a half hours. And then I really thought, oh, so I, was, I think the oh, nice. longest one was in the K-8. And it was a summer day. I was wearing shorts and, and uh, didn't have any extra, like a sweater w with me. And it got really cold. So <laughs> I actually had to descend... Um, with uh with the air brakes of course because i just wasn't descending and, right uh, <laughs> that was fun yeah it gets it gets chilly at those higher altitudes yeah exactly it's something people don't think about I, th I think you know there's been a few times it was like almost 90 and some of my friends that don't fly they're like why are you going to the airport and fly today it's so hot i said no no, no. it'll be fine once i get in the air they're like what like, you know, the temperature drops, right? When you go out and they're like, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice on those really hot summer days. If you can go flying, it's it's fantastic. Oh, Cooling yeah. up there. I know that you do some powered stuff too, but as far as a dream ship, I'm going to have you give me both because you have some love for powered as well as soaring. But so what's your dream ship if it would come to a glider that, that you would love to fly and as well as powered too? Um, well, I'm kind of go, going to go in between. Um, since my flight recently with the duo Discus, I fell in love. I thought it was such a such a cool cool plane. And and if I if money wasn't a, didn't play a role, I would definitely get that. I I'm, I don't I don't think if I'm picky now, but I think the duo is uh, is great. And then you have the powered and the glider all in one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I um, the sustainer. I mean, I don't feel like I have to have an engine with me if I go gliding. I mean, that's we learn how to fly gliders without it anyway, but if you're going to get one anyway, it ha it can have the sustainer. So I think that's cool. So what made you encourage people to jump out of airplanes? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sidestep. Uh, what uh, encouraged me to jump for people to jump out of my plane? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, okay. So first of all, sorry to all the skydivers, but they're all a bunch of crazy people. Um, he, uh, pilots always say that they would never jump out of a perfectly yeah, right. aircraft. I've learned to disagree. I've learned to disagree to that because um, I actually became a member of the skydiving club. <clears throat> sorry, right next to my gliding club. It's all in one little row of hangars out of my airport. Um, and since I was walking around at the airport since since my fifteenth, uh, I kept seeing all these skydivers, and I thought it was so cool. And um, when I got my PPL. I uh, I wanted to build some hours, and I knew that the club that I uh, that was next to our gliding club had pilots that were PPL pilots and could drop skydivers because it wasn't a commercial company and you weren't getting paid for it. So that was a really really lucky shot actually for me to 
able to start there. And I had previously already jumped, uh, uh, done a static line jump myself. Oh, nice. So I kind of, out of that same plane, so I kind of knew the uh, the ins and outs of it. Um, And then I, they, they made me do some check rides with an instructor who gave me hell. I had to do force landing after force landing and then they, and put the plane in it, stall it. And it was just a really crazy test, like a little check ride. And then they let me uh, fly for them. And that was in 2018, I think. Yeah. Uh, since then, I've been dropping skydivers. And I must say, the community is so fun. It's really different than the gliding community because uh, you're not really doing a team sport. Gliding, in my experience, is really a team sport. And the skydiving is everyone's on their own. But it is still a very fun experience. You're, 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 you're helping people get to the altitude and they can jump. So you're helping them with their, with their hobby. And uh, you should, you can really feel that adrenaline rush while you're flying because you have all these crazy people in the back that want to jump out of your plane. So <laughs> it's just, a, it's a lot of fun. I, I get a lot of energy from the work that I do. So you took a static jump. Did you jump any more after that? Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I have about 35 jumps now. Oh, wow. Um, I, so I did the build up uh, in the Netherlands. Usually, people don't do that anymore. They either do the static line course, and then they do the accelerated free fall course after that. Um, so then you jump, and then you're like two two instructors hold on to your 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 suit, and then you build up until they let go, and then you do your your free fall actually, solo free fall. Um, but at my gliding or at my skydiving club, uh, they only offer the static line course, and they did the uh, the build up towards. Uh, free fall so first time you're doing seven static line jumps and then the next one you have a fake dummy a pull dummy so you pretend to pull the parachute but it's actually still the static line you do that a few times and then all of a sudden they say okay good luck and then you jump and you actually have to pull your parachute by yourself alone and that was ridiculous that was so cool and uh yeah unfortunately after the summer last year i was too busy with work so maybe this summer i'll uh, i'll do some more jumps I don't know about jumping. I don't like the glide ratio on them. No. <laughs> so you've never jumped? No, I, I haven't. I, I actually kind of I, would, I, but I'm, I I have some anxiety when it, when I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I have. I only have that. I have it, but I only have it right before I have to jump. And then you can't really say no anymore. So yeah. I really kind of screw myself over there. <laughs> yeah, it's too late, right? Have you, but have you ever done paragliding? Because that's right in the middle. Oh, no, that's on my list. I actually would love to experience both the powered and and like the, the jumps. You know, I would, I would like the idea of taking a hike up a mountain because lots of mountains here in this area and then just jumping off. Mm-hmm. And are there uh, paragliding clubs in your area? Because uh, yeah, I there assume are. there should be. Yeah, there's some to the south of me, I believe, in Virginia. So I would actually talk cool. to someone already down there. So. I may definitely experience that. I am. It's just a matter of when. But yeah, it's it seems like a beautiful experience. For sure, I've actually done. Uh, this is. I, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was talking to my parents about it when I saw them. Um, that into the year before I became a glider pilot, I did my first uh, paragliding flights, jumps, something in between. Um, so I was fourteen, I think. Oh wow, and. Um, and that was fantastic because you have that freedom of flying and you're in the air a little longer than um, 
with a parachute with a skydive parachute um but that was in france and we don't ha- we don't have a lot of those soaring cl- or paragliding clubs here in the netherlands i do know that in south africa along the coast there's a lot of um they do a lot of berg like the what's that called the ridge flying yeah with the paragliders Mm -hmm. and that looks amazing yeah yeah there's some beautiful stuff out there on social media just some awesome videos and pictures like i I have to try that someday looks very cool for sure so your social media do you have some you'd like to share with us i know you've done a lot of youtube stuff recently right yeah, I actually started my YouTube account in, um, what was it, in March, half of March, uh, when I was still in the Caribbean, um, kind of sharing my daily life or a day in the life of a Caribbean skydive pilot. And that took off quite well. So um, I thought I might as well, I have time on my hands now with the corona crisis. I can't fly as much as I hoped to. And my work was kind of on pause. So I've been starting making YouTube videos of my experiences and it's kind of cool. It's growing quite quickly. And uh, that's kind of a full-time job right now. I also have a blog uh, that I really have to put more time in. I want to write some more stories, of my, especially my experiences with being a, a student glider pilot and how that has shaped me as a motorized pilot. So that, and then on Instagram, sharing some experiences and some fun. And I, I mainly use Instagram for inspiration of other people that do super cool soaring and flying so i think it's cool that we have social media absolutely we can share that on the show notes if that's cool with you cool yeah it's uh pilot bambi on youtube and on instagram it's (laughs) easy to remember yeah so is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to that's been influential in your in your flying well first of all i'd like to thank ronald uh who actually contacted you for me to be on the podcast, which was such a surprise. And uh, I want to thank him for that. And uh, then I have another instructor called Schwartz. Schwartz is an, uh, a retired KLM pilot, and he's one of our instructors at the, at the gliding club. And he was kind of my mentor throughout my flight training. He taught me all the skills. Uh, he's been very strict on me, which is good because that's how you learn. Um, and he's really supported me. And I must say that the whole time that I've been flying gliders like that 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 growth that I experienced at the gliding club that has helped me so much for my for my future career in aviation and uh, that's one more thing that I wanted to add previously about kind of promoting gliding under young or aspiring pilots of any age it's such a such such a good start of your aviation career you become very aware of your spatial orientation your your awareness of airspace, um, your understanding of basic aerodynamics, uh, lift, all of that. It's such a good basis, especially if you start, if you start now, you'll, you'll, you'll benefit from it so much. Absolutely. Do you have any advice on how to be a better and safer pilot? Um, better and safer pilot. Number one is always be honest about everything. Um, we can't pretend like we know it all. Uh, that's very difficult. Um, but you make mistakes and you learn from them and you have to, you, you can't be scared to ask advice from people that have more experience. There are always people that are more experienced, um, that have had the, that have experienced the same problems that you're facing. I mean, I'm quite a perfectionist and I, uh, recently I did a looping and, um, I wasn't perfectly 
diving into the wind. So from the ground, it looked a little bit skew. It wasn't a perfectly straight looping. And um, it ate me up. I was so frustrated. And I thought, how can this happen? I thought I knew how to make perfect loopings. And it was just a little bit skew. And I talked to an instructor and he said, hey, this happens to the best of us. This happens to all of us. You learn from it. Sometimes the wind is different than you think at a certain altitude, but the people that you look up to have experienced and gone through the same as you have. And that's that goes for any age. I, I learn things from pilots that are younger than me. I learn from pilots that are older than me. So having an open discussion in aviation is the most important to be safe. Absolutely. Some great advice. Yeah. Thank you, Rosita, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope that this... Uh, yeah, and I, I really want to take a part in inspiring new people to get to know gliding. And uh, I realized when I posted two, I actually posted two videos on soaring uh, last month on YouTube. I thought, okay, well, I guess for me, this is such a normal life that I have. I, I, I grew up with gliding, so it's maybe not new for a lot of people, but I've gotten so much positive feedback from people that said wow how does a winch launch work i didn't even know that existed there's so many clubs that don't use a winch or that have specific different rules on uh flying with a motor glider and all of that so it's cool to share your experiences and i mean i've never flown in the u.s so everything that you share on your podcast and the people that you invite it's so interesting for me from the netherlands so we can learn so much from each other well you have to fly here sometime you're welcome to do that Thank you. Yeah, I would love to. I'll take you up on that. But uh, I would love to find the U.S. ones. Here in the Mid-Atlantic, we have thermals, we have ridge soaring, we have wave. So we have it all. Fantastic. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Will you take care? We'll talk to you soon. All right. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor waved in. Blue skies. Cheers. And now our soaring safety segment with previous guest from episode 43, Andrew White from Lake Keep It, Australia. If you have checklists, do them. If you set your own standards and apply them to yourself. Um, one that comes to my mind, which is easy, is that I ask myself each day, are the conditions okay? Is the glider okay? And am I okay? And if, you know, and probably really getting down to am I okay if I'm tired or you know, should I be setting a long flight when I'm only when I'm feeling tired or something like that? Um, so that's that's a biggie. Um, do outlanding practice; it'll happen one day. Um, moving on from there, I'd say talk and listen to other more experienced pilots. Um, they've done and seen a lot, and you'll, you'll learn from them. And to that extent, if you can share, do a dual flight with them. You'll pick up a lot just by observing and talking to them. Keep current, fly often. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment, just contact me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. And now for our SkySight Soaring Tips and Techniques segment with our guest, David Hart, focusing on motor gliders. You can check out SkySight service absolutely free for 17 days just by using the coupon code SOARINGTHESKY. 
David Hart, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you again. How are you doing? Great, Chuck. It's so good to be here. If they want to hear your story and how it all started, they can check out episode 34, Best in the East and the West, I believe that one was called. And you have flown all over the country. But today I wanted to get into the self-launcher because that is what you fly. We haven't talked a lot about that on the podcast, so there's definitely something I wanted to ask you about. So what is it like? You go to the airport and you're getting ready to fly. Can you walk me through it? Well, um, my, my self-launcher is a, a DG-800, so it's um, you know, a 25-year-old aircraft at this point. And be- before I even go to the airfield, uh, I'm going to have some level of confidence that it's going to run. That is, that you know, the periodic maintenance done is done or that I've operated it within the last, say, four weeks. Uh, if it's this longer than four weeks, then maybe you got to do something, uh, you know, the pre-flight to make sure that the motor is ready to go. Uh, but for the most part, in flying season, you can be assured that the airplane is going to start. So uh, I happen in right now to have a hangar in Cumberland, uh, near and dear to your heart, that I share with Rob Cluxton. Uh, Rob, shout out. Uh, he's, he's the most uh, agreeable hangar mate that I've ever had. And I just leave the airplane rigged in, in there. So I just have to pull up and open the door and roll it out. And uh, I'm ready to go. So there's no time rigging or anything like that. I will say that I don't like to taxi the airplane for an extended period. Uh, and it's a pretty good distance from the hangar to the start of the runway. So I generally stage out there with my van. Uh, and, you know, get the airplane staged at the, at the threshold of the runway. Then uh, you know, I've usually pre-flighted, it, or if I need to pre-flight, that takes, you know, just a few minutes. Extend the, the, the motor, get in, strap it all. I need a checklist for my checklist, you know, because I got a checklist for that and this and a checklist for that. But, uh, you know, if you do it fairly frequently, then you're in practice and you can uh, get it right. And you sit down in the cockpit and you fire that starter and the motor starts and away you go. So all that, all that whole thing from the time you arrive uh, and then wheel it out and get it, you know, uh, at the threshold and stage and all that's probably an hour, uh, which is not that different than any other gliding. When you're on the runway and you're taking off, how long does it take you to get to, let's say, 3,000 feet? Because I'm just used to being aerotoed. Well, it, it varies with the density altitude and the weight of the aircraft and so forth. You have to accelerate to 43 knots. Also, the wind, the wind speed and direction. But uh, 43 knots is the speed at which you can you know, pull the stick and lift off. A little more if you're heavy. Again, that's really not a function of the, uh, the motorized part. Now, the motor does tend to, you know, the motor is on a pylon that extends behind the pilot. And so when you give it throttle, it pushes the nose down because the, the propeller is you know, not on the same axis as a fuselage. So you have to trim it aft and, you know, that's part of the checklist, the pre-flight, you know, the pre-takeoff check to, to check your trim. But uh, other than that, you just, uh, you know, give it the throttle and it's just like the tow plane going and, and off you go and you get, you know, always, I know never have a wing handler pretty much uh, because uh, you know, we're just rolling up on a, on a County airport. And so, 
uh, I can have a tailwheel that I can steer with my pedals. So I'm able to keep it straight until I get enough airspeed to pick the wing up. And that's usually 15, 20 knots. And then uh, you just keep it, keep the nose down and, you know, keep the nose uh, low, tail picks up. Uh, and then around, right around the 40 somewhere of knots, you, you pull the stick aft and ring up you go. Hopefully, you know, in a hurry, usually uh, if you hold it on the ground a little bit, when you finally, you know, pull out, pull, you can bounce a pretty good climb in the first climb. In the meantime, you're watching your RPM and your your basic engine instruments, of which there are three basic ones that that go. The one's fuel, uh, another one's RPM, and the third one is uh, well, it varies. Sometimes it's uh, your charge, but anyway, uh, you're making sure that all that stuff is is in the green, and particularly the engine RPM. And the way you keep that in the green during the climb is to use your airspeed. So if you're go- if it starts to drop, you you go faster, and if it starts to climb, you pull and go slower and climb more. So as you know, you do that during your engine run. My engine runs last from five to ten minutes, depending on the airfield. Rarely longer or shorter than that. Then when you find a place where there seems to be lift, usually I'm a couple thousand feet, I climb a couple thousand feet, fifteen hundred maybe. So there's no reason to do it twice and make it hard on yourself uh, for your first uh, thermal or whatever your lift you're getting. So you shut it, then you shut it down. And there's a little trick. There's tricks to that. You got to line up the propeller, and you have an indicator that you know whether the propeller's lined up. And if it's um, if it is, then you can retract the motor, and you, it makes a you know an audible sound as it closes that you can be assured that it's closed. And there's a warning light. And you know, various motor gliders have comparable system so you know if you properly retracted the engine and then away you go as a glider i know that as a glider without the engine of course it's a lot different so you having the self-launcher i'm sure there's been areas that you've flown that you normally wouldn't flown can you tell me about that a little bit well um the reason to have a motor glider is so that you can fly pretty much you know anywhere you want and not be dependent on you know, another person, right? A, a tow plane or a winch or whatever. And so, you know, I have, I, when you go to a contest or some other site, um, it's easy to take a tow instead of self-launching. Uh, if you want to kind of pitch in to the local operation, it's sometimes a good idea. But for the most part, you know, I'm apart from, you know, soaring operations. Maybe I'll have a buddy or two or someone flying the same day from somewhere nearby. But it's really a lone eagle kind of thing. You can go on your own and fly anytime. The issue becomes one of, of uh, retrieve should you uh, fail to return. And there are a number of reasons why you might, you know, largest of which is you fail to start the engine or, you know, are not in a position where you can start the engine. You know, when, you do, when, you, when you're flying by yourself uh, and there's some risk of landing out, then you tend to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, in terms of you know where you would go when there are other people flying and you can get a retrieve then then you know you're going to stretch your your uh, you know to your next thermal or your next ridge or whatever with you know with that as a theme it's easy to go to any airport and fly nearby and I found that when you're flying for the first time from a new location that you know st- staying close to the airport and just going out in one direction and then another you know kind of like making a star or something uh, you get plenty of good you know, local experience, good flying experience, uh, just from being in a new location. 
and I'm a big proponent of, of flying you know, different places as much as possible so that you can get a variety of experience and not have to rely on, you know, rote to make a safe approach and landing set or, or climb out or whatever you have to do. You know, flying different places is, is highly recommended. You know, so, so as far as my own experience here in the last little bit, I'm looking at my logbook here and just skimming here the last maybe five or 10 pages. The locations I've flown the most out of uh, that I couldn't have flown otherwise were uh, Bedford, Pennsylvania. So that's in the ridge. I flew, uh, boy, a whole bunch, 15, 20 times there maybe. Uh, more, 15, 20 times. Uh, Parowan was out west. There was no, well, there were some toes, but not many. Montrose, uh, Salida, these are all out west. Those were exciting. Uh, and certainly not things I could have done otherwise. That was part of my other episode. I told a couple of those stories, but just flying out of Montrose, which is a story I told, was uh, you know just a wonderful flight, and it wasn't like I did some huge triangle. What else do we have here? Well, so Petersburg, uh, West Virginia, they have a sometime tow and winch operation there, but uh, I've tended to fly there in the fall and the winter and early spring. Well, it's, uh, I think, um, you know, a lot of vertical elevation changes in the terrain from the um, Allegheny Plateau dropping off to the kind of the upper valley of the Potomac River. And so you have wave conditions, which uh, that's what I've, you know, certainly I wouldn't have been able to fly my Petersburg wave if it hadn't been for the self-launcher because there was no one to tell me. And a lot of those flights I did by myself. So that was, I don't know, 10 or 15 flights, more, 20 flights. There was a whole year where I didn't have the motor working. So in that year, I flew just regular places and took toes. But then where else did I fly? You know, Bedford figures prominently because of the uh, proximity to my house. It's really the closest place in the ridge system to, to where I live in Pittsburgh. So it makes it super convenient to get there. And so I can fly any day of the week. And mini tow operations are few, fly seven days a week. Uh, and so that makes a difference there that I can get some more good days that I couldn't, um, you know, maybe on a, on a Tuesday or something. So can you give me any tips, being that I fly out of Cumberland, what you found, what you've done? Well, I should mention Cumberland is a place that I've self-launched as well uh, without, uh, you know, uh, since the tow operation there is infrequent on the weekend. But uh, Cumberland, yes, uh, I have I have a love hate relationship with Cumberland. <laughs> I have to admit, I love it now. I hated it for a while, <laughs> and and the reason I would say that the the first time I took off, well, I had no one to tell me what to do. I just showed up one winter's one winter's day, and decided I was going to fly to Cumberland. And so uh, it was a weekday, I think. I rigged the glider and kind of you know took an eyeball of the runway. And the runway that was into the wind was 2.9. And I kind of paced it off and it was, uh, you know, uphill. But there was, I don't know, 1,500 feet. You asked me how, how far I needed to take off. I need about, you know, at least five or 600 feet, probably, you know, 200 meters, something like that. In the best of circumstances, kind of calm. So I figured, you know, 1,000 feet, 1,500, no problem. Well, I tell you what. <laughs> I well, first of all, I didn't stage at the at the at the bottom of runway two nine. I staged kind of in the middle, okay. uh, which takes away half the runway. And right. and so off I went. I was may- maybe 
50 feet above the runway, maybe. Wow. When I got to the end of it, as you know, there are hangars and stuff there. And there's the, to the right, there's the hill with the, with the beacon yeah. on it. I managed to kind of swing a right turn and, you know, kind of a turn crosswind and half downwind, you know, flew over the terminal building and then uh, climbed out over, you know, runway five. <laughs> And it's like, whoa, that was like never again. That was <laughs> really a bad experience. And then later in the same flight, not f- not far, I, I, I motored up over the city of Cumberland and onto the ridge there at the quarry uh, onto uh, Wills Mountain. And so headed northbound and towards uh, Hindman and getting around the knob at Hindman. And I forget what the wind was doing, maybe a little northerly. And... I just ran into sync going around Heinemann and sure enough, you know, I'm like headed for a field. I scraped and scraped for a good, I don't know. It seemed like forever, probably five minutes, uh, set up for a field there and got the motor out and luckily it lit and I, you know, I flew out of there. Um, but it was that same flight where I just kind of scared myself on the takeoff. So it was not a pleasant, uh, feeling. And I would say kind of ruined my attitude for the day. And after that, it, you know, it struck me that Cumberland was dangerous, you know, if you launched that way. Clearly, I'd, I'd gotten it wrong. So it was a long time before I came back. I came back, well, it's been in the last six months or less. Uh, and the first time on the new time, again, not knowing better, uh, just showed up. And uh, this time I figured I'd use the whole runway 29. So I did. I went you know, down to the bottom of 29 and sure enough, got it going. And this time I was maybe 100 feet above the ground when I got to the end of the runway instead of 50 and I was still too low for comfort and did the same thing, right turn, you know, kind of over the little, you know, the rotating beacon and over the terminal climb out runway Mm -hmm. five. It's just not, it's a hairy takeoff. It's just not a nice takeoff. And you don't want to go left because then you could, then you're going to dump it in the river because it's, you know, it's sinkhole over there. So, so the the moral of the story is don't take off on runway two nine. Great in comfort. It's great for, (laughs) It's great for landing, yeah. but terrible for taking off unless you're in a Pilatus or something. And even then, now of course there's this other runway at Cumberland, which is huge and long. It's uh, you know runway five and two three, which is the better runway to take off. Uh, two three generally, really doesn't matter if you even have a little tailwind because it's long enough that you know you can you can kind of steer along the runway while you're gathering speed, and then when you lift off, you have a bailout to two nine, which is just to the right there. And so if you have a motor problem or you're not high enough or something's wrong, uh, you can just stop. And it's real easy to, to, to just uh, abort your flight. And by the time you get to the runway, end of the runway, two, three, then you're high enough to make a turn that, you know, you're not scaring yourself with the terrain. So that's now my, my new Cumberland experience. And then, and then once you, you know, the, 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 I think another reason the Cumberland is, uh, uh, I would call it technical as an airfield is that, when the when the weather's good, usually it's westerly or northwesterly winds. Uh, Cumberland is right behind a pretty good sized uh, hill, which is the first of the knoblies, um, the you know, whatever the northern knobly knob is, and which is right behind the airport, right right to the west of it. And so uh, inevitably, there is violent sink, you know, somewhere behind that when it when it blows hard, and it's hard to avoid it. You know, because it'll sink in, you know, waves even. It's hard to avoid the rotor right there over the field when the wind's really blowing. And I think that the way the club takes off, down one on 2.9, there may be a limit at which the wind 
or down, down, down went on whatever the, the reciprocal, right? Is it seven? Uh, I'm sorry, or, one, one. or uh, one, one. Yeah, one, one. That you take off on there. So, I mean, there's probably a, a wind condition where you'd be reluctant to take off. I don't know. Have you experienced that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's been days I said, no, no I'm not I'm not doing it. <laughs> well, just as a matter of, you know, that, that you're going downwind and then the rotor is the thing. Yeah. Uh, that you can get some violent, you know, updrafts and downdrafts pretty low to the ground. That's That can be alarming and you got to be on your toes, you know. I mean, it is a big field, though. It's it's big, right? The, the, the runways are big. And so it's not, that makes it a lot safer. In fact, landing on two nine a couple times, things had got a little hairy while I was in the air. It was fine when I took off, but then by the time I came in, and it it just got crazy bumpy when you're landing, and it was a little unnerving. <laughs> yeah, well, um, one of your club members told me the story of a couple of the mishaps in the you know at the club running landing on two nine was one of them, where the uh, I think the the new the new solo student was uh, too high and kind of overflew the runway. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the approach drops off pretty good. So you don't want to like, you know, try to coast in. No, you want to, you know, fly well over the threshold in case there's some big sink. And then, you know, there's plenty of runway there. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, they're filling in the approach end of, uh, of two, three, uh, they're filling it in now with dirt. They're digging up the, the hill, uh, above the club hangar and they're moving the trucks 24 seven, moving that dirt over to the approach end of two, three. And so that one's not going to be as steep, the approach, you know, with the dropping off, like right at the, right at the threshold. Right. That's another one, right? That if you're lined up for two, three and all of a sudden you get some rotary sink and you're, you know, not close, you got to bail into not great fields and wires and stuff like that. So having that threshold is actually pretty nice or not having it is, is, you know, can be worrisome. You've touched base on some safety, but I do want to ask you if you could give us some advice on how to be a better and safer pilot in a self-launcher. I know there's been, you know, some accidents out there that after investigating them, they found that they think it was because they got too low and they depended on the motor. And of course, the motor didn't fire and then they had issues. What's some advice you could give someone with a self-launcher? Well, I think... um... Uh, you should fly. Well, the advice that was given me before I bought it from uh, Al Bennett, the longtime CFIG at Pittsburgh Soaring Association and many time winner of the regional instructors award was that I should think about, think about my ship as a glider and not as a, not the motor's not a, a self recovery. You know, it's not for that, right? It's for launching and then you fly it like a glider. And uh, so that, what that means is uh, if you think like a glider pilot, you, you don't rely on the engine to save you. Uh, you only use the engine when you've picked a field where you're going to land. And then if you can't light it, it won't be a surprise or a disaster, right? You have a field and down you go. Uh, you might or might not have the time to retract your engine. Uh, in fact, that, that's happened to me where I, uh, I tried to light the engine and, you know, wouldn't light and I retracted it and flew another hour, you know, trying to dig out ended up landing out anyway but the point is that you're a glider first and the motor is really a launch mechanism uh and nothing more in in a in a safe mindset um not that i had not done engine saves i have 
but but I would say I've never done an engine save where it would have been a disaster if the engine didn't start. You always had that field, that insurance that you'd be okay either way. Right. Always had a field. Always had a field. I would say my scariest moment, uh, the motor wasn't going to save me. In fact, I think the motor was in op. <laughs> you know, my scariest moment in a glider was unrelated to uh, it being a motor glider. It was just bad judgment. But with the, you know, with the motor, uh, it really opens up a whole world of uh, soaring opportunity if you have the time to take advantage of it, uh, because you can kind of take off and do things. I've done Western safaris now for you know a couple years. Uh, unfortunately, this year it didn't make it to Utah. Uh, because of the coronavirus situation, but uh, hope to go there, you know, when things get a little bit better. In the meantime, limiting limiting my flying to kind of the mid-Atlantic area. And uh, even in a time like this, I keep my eye on the weather. And this is not the best time of year for this area, I think, in terms of flying cross-country. But some days pop up and it's, it, it can be, uh, you know, opportunistic. Uh, you know, away I go. I would be remiss if I didn't mention to your listeners that uh, having a motor glider is, I'll say double negative. It's not without its, without its responsibilities, right? That you have to stay current on your maintenance uh, in order to fly safely in a motor glider or to have it reliably launch you. Uh, I'm not talking about the glider parts now which any glider would have and, you know, need to be annual, you know, it's just those kinds of things don't break, but what does break is all the stuff that's attached to the motor, which vibrates extremely when it's running and at a high temperature. And, uh, you know, the mechanism that makes it go up and down is complex. There's a lot of wiring, fuel lines, et cetera. And that stuff all shakes loose or it gets dirty or whatever. A hundred things can happen and do. And so you have to be on top of that all the time and you know, be very rigorous with your pre-flight. I gave a talk at the last SSA convention about my particular motor glider. The Auxiliary uh, Sailplane Association uh, put on a whole series of these things. And I did it for the DG800. And I had a long list. Anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, I'd be happy to send it to you uh, of stuff that's gone wrong with my glider. Each one of those required research and downtime and in many cases, consulting with a mechanic. So it's not trivial. But on the other hand, I would say that I've gotten a lot of enjoyment, hundreds of hours. I've now flown this glider over 750 hours in the last, wow. uh, what, four years, something like that. And so I've gotten a very intense... Uh, shot of soaring pleasure that I don't know how I would have gotten any other way uh, without moving, you know, to Moriarty or something. And it's always nice to uh, not have to worry about tow pilots. I love the tow pilots, but when they're not there, it's disappointing. <laughs> well, yeah, you're dependent on your tow pilots. And there's many a weekend when club operations were stymied because we didn't have a good volunteer. You know, we give the tow pilots an incentive to fly at the club you know that that is that they fly for free uh so they're getting free hours and that's you know a lot of people like that and i guess towing gliders is fun for some people but you know sometimes uh, if you're short of, uh it's there's no worse feeling than the feeling of regret 
on a good day that you didn't soar because uh, there was no uh, toe plane. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at the sky and you know you're all hangdog. It's uh, it's a terrible feeling. I was going to ask you about you. You said you had a scary moment. It had nothing to do with the, the motor. Yeah, it was uh, one of my first contests at Newcastle, Virginia, which is a gorgeous place to fly, and the mountains are quite tall and come up all around the glider port. So there's a lot of uh, soaring done close to the ridges, as you would expect. Newcastle, there's a ridge that runs uh, west and a little bit south from the town of Newcastle, and there was a turn point out that way, maybe, I don't know, 10 miles. Uh, it was late in the day. I was not having a great day. I'd had to have a relight, so probably my, my head wasn't in it. And uh, I went for that turn point, and uh, the day was okay, but not really a ridge day. So I was kind of floating along in the late afternoon lift, getting lower and lower. I got to the, but I was going to make the turn point, dang it, and get my extra, you know, 50 points. And so I made it, uh, turned and realized, I think that I had my gear down the whole time, like the whole flight. It was like, that was why I was thinking of course. So it was, you know, so it was like stupid, stupidity. Uh, and so I closed the gear up and head back and I'm getting lower and lower over this ridge headed back now eastbound into Newcastle. And there's a, there's a notch maybe two or three miles uh, to the east of town or sorry, to the west of Newcastle that you got to go over the saddle before you can get down to the glider port. And just before that, there's some fields, uh, you know, before you get to the notch. And so the fields, that's where I could have landed had I, had I, you know, not been a fool and so I proceeded along the ridge uh, for the notch and made it with, you know, 50 or 100 feet to spare. And that was all downhill into Newcastle, but it was probably three or four miles of downhill and right over the town. And so I did my final glide, you know, over the town of Newcastle. I later looked at the trace and I was, you know, 100 feet. Oh, wow. Kind of, you know, that was my 50 meters maybe a hundred meters, you know, and, and lower here and there. And luckily it was downhill all the way. And I just made it and straight in and landed at the threshold of the, I think at that point you're, you're headed South. Boy, I kissed the ground when I got out of the glider and cursed myself for what a fool I was to, to have taken that stupid risk. And the next day I made a point at the pilots meeting. It was a contest after all of, telling that same story and, and, you know, my own, uh, learning from it that never again would I, you know, pass up a field for the sake of a marginal, marginal final glide over unlandable terrain. So that one stayed with me. And I think about that, uh, sometimes certainly going back to Newcastle, I do think about that. Well, David, thank you for sharing that story with us and also sharing it with the other pilots and their when we do something, sometimes it's, you know, it's not, it's not what you want to do. You don't want to really share it, but we've talked about on the podcast before how important it is to share with everyone because it could save somebody else from a very bad situation that might turn out a lot worse. Amen, brother. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast again. It's been great catching up with you again. Chuck, uh, you're doing great stuff and it's amazing. All your commercial success all around the globe. They're fans of Soaring the Sky who, who tune in for all the latest glider news and, 
gossip and you're doing a wonderful job with all the interviews that you do and all the pilots and, and the great content that you're turning out. So I'm just super happy to be here and to be part of this great thing and uh, look forward to the next time. Thank you, David, and I appreciate your contribution to the podcast. Bye now, Chuck. Thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure and hearing some great advice from pilots all over the globe. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also do that on Apple Podcasts. It does help the podcast and the soaring community grow. Also, thank you to our guests who bring us exciting aviation adventures each episode. Our Facebook group, Soaring the Sky Podcast, a lot of you continue to join that. Thank you so much for that. Our Instagram has also been growing. Some exciting stuff in the very near future for you. You're not going to want to miss that. We're going to tell you more about that on our next episode. Don't forget to check out SkySight. Matt has given us that special code, Soaring the Sky, all caps. Also in the show notes for you. If you're new to soaring and you want to check it out, you want to take your first glider ride, all you need to do, go to ssa.org and find your local club. If you want to find out how to interact with us on social media, Michelle has that info for you next. Stay healthy, stay safe. We will talk to you next time right here on Soaring the Sky. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website SoaringTheSky.com Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.